Be Rad podcast is brought to you by MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Brad's macadamia masterpiece, mind-blowing nut butter blend, now offered on Amazon. Chili technology, temperature-controlled mattress systems for a good night's sleep. InsideTracker.com, offering blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data all in one place. And Organifi, whole food organic superfood supplements and drink blends. And please visit the shopping page at bradkearns.com for my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance with great discounts for listeners. Here we go with the show. Even when you're a really physically active person, they're burning most of their calories every day on things that are not physical activity. Your immune system, your digestive system, your stress reaction, your you know inflammation, things like that. You can turn all those things down and, and free up a lot of energy, basically, for the act- activity. And then what that does is, at the end of the day, the total number of calories you burn hasn't really moved because you've just juggled around how you spend the calories rather than increasing that top line number. I think we have to rethink why we exercise. Exercise is really good for so many things, you know? It just doesn't help for weight loss very much. So we have to rethink, you know, look, if you're looking at the bathroom scale and that number's not changing, and you're like, what the hell's going on? Why am I even bothering to exercise? The answer is, for all the stuff you can't see. There is no easy fix, that it's actually very hard to move your weight around a lot. But what seems to be successful is finding that diet that works for you. In other words, that makes you feel full on fewer calories. Hey, listeners, I'm so excited to tee up my wonderful and wide-ranging interview with Dr. Herman Ponser, author of the sensational new book called Burn. And boy, oh boy, fasten your seatbelts because he is going to blow the lid off our conventional notions about fitness and diet and everything that the fitness and diet industry is predicated on. Here's the subtitle, New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Lose Weight, and Stay Healthy. And Herman is deep into uh, anthropology, evolutionary biology. He provides some really uh, high-level takeaway quotes to set the context really nicely. Uh, One of them is, quote, the name of the game is to turn energy into kids. That is our evolutionary purpose. And He talks in great detail in the book about how metabolism is closely correlated with longevity. That's his life's work, is energy expenditure. And the big takeaway that I jumped to right at the start of the show to get you excited and interested is that humans burn the same number of calories every day regardless of our exercise habits. So this is what Herman does. He investigates the physiology of humans and apes to understand how ecology, lifestyle, diet, and evolutionary history affect metabolism and health, and how ecology and evolution influence musculoskeletal design and physical activity. So if we're reeling from this grand assertion that basically our workouts don't matter in the context of trying to drop excess body fat, how do we do it? Listen to the show, and you're going to find out. And he offers up a very sensible theory that integrates all manner of lifestyle habits. So that's cool because that's what we've been talking about all the time is optimizing your sleep and how that affects fat burning, uh, your exercise and moving more throughout the day as being uh, vastly more important even than adhering to 
a devoted exercise regimen because of all the hormonal and metabolic consequences of regular movement and the fact that your workout doesn't really contribute to uh, extra calories burned in this additive model that has now been uh, turned around as being flawed. However, uh, working out, fitness, developing muscle mass, and athletic competency has all kinds of correlation to health and longevity. It's just not about burning extra calories in exercise to lose weight. So what is the secret to fat loss? Here it is. You ready? I'm going to quote Dr. Herman Ponser. Find a diet that makes you feel totally satisfied on fewer calories. It really is as simple as that. How do we do that? Well, he's going to talk about eliminating these hyper palatable foods that a lot of people are blaming. And that's certainly uh, the place to place our major focus is these processed foods that don't provide nourishment, not as much satiety as a truly nutritious food. And they get you coming back for more and more. And I think one of the most valuable uh, parts of the show and also the book is how we get to come in and see uh, one of the last hunter-gatherer societies left on earth, the Hadza, and get all kinds of insights and takeaways that we can really reflect upon, and some beautiful commentary at the very end by Dr. Herman talking about how uh, his experience with the Hadza influences how he makes decisions and reflects on the various things that are going on in hectic, high-stress modern world. Interestingly, the Hadza remain in their primitive hunter-gatherer uh, society by choice. They're near villages. They could walk in there and uh, get an internet connection or a smartphone or whatever, uh, but they love their simple lifestyle. You're going to learn about the Hadza word za, which means to give, and the realization that humans are built or designed to live in cooperation, not conflict. A wonderful show with Dr. Herman Ponser, the author of Burn. Here we go. Dr. Herman Ponser, I am so excited to connect with this interview and talk about your sensational new book called Burn. And uh, we've been talking about it, uh, looking at the, uh, the insights for many months before the release. And so now the book launches upon us and we're going to learn some insights that are going to blow our minds, huh? Thanks for uh, having me. I'm really excited to hear, be here talking with you about it. Yeah, I mean the you know the book covers uh, contain uh, marketing hype and that you know this is a sensational new diet that's going to uh, make you lose weight like no other diet ever and all that. <laughs> uh, but in your case, um, the the marketing content is very well worded and it's not really hype because your research is is blowing the lid off our fundamental beliefs about how the body burns calories and and lose or maintains weight. And I want to start off with a bang here for the listeners to, to pay attention. So I'm going to quote, uh, I think it was from chapter three, where you said, your daily activity level has no bearing on the number of calories you burn each day. And with that, I, I hand it over to you. What the heck are you talking about, man? Yeah, is, that is, that's a shocker. Uh, it was for me too. Um, so, you know, we, we can ease into this gently. Um, you know, I'm trained as an anthropologist and as a physiologist. I've been interested in how bodies use energy my whole career uh, because, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, which is how I think about humans, um, the whole name of the game is turning energy into kids, right? So if you can figure out how you're burning energy, you can figure out a lot about any organism and that includes us. Um, now, if you want to understand how humans burn energy and you want to kind of do it in an evolutionary ecological context, you don't care about people burning energy in New York City or, you know, in a westernized, industrialized context that, you know, the, the frame of reference that you want to have 
is what hunting and gathering does to us because we were hunting and gathering for two and a half million years, right? So that is the lifestyle that shaped us. Um, and there are a handful of, of hunting and gathering groups that are still doing it today. And so we went and worked with one of them, the Hadza in Northern Tanzania. And, you know, the, a population like that's magic because you get to ask the question, what would my body be like if I grew up as a hunter gatherer, right? I mean, it's so cool that you can do this. And so we go there and we work with these guys and the whole goal is to just show the world how many more calories they burn than the rest of us. Cause we know they're really physically active and we're going to show just how high those energy expenditures are every day. It's about 10 years ago that we did this work. Um, I go there with my buddy, Dave Reichlin and my buddy, uh, Brian Wood. We measure the energy expenditures using this you know, sort of complex uh, isotope tracking technique, the gold standard for doing this work, get back home, look at the data. And we can't believe it because you know, if you, you can imagine, and we can talk about it more if you want, but, you know, hunting and gathering is hard work, right? You're doing a lot of activity every day. And the, the number of calories they're burning was no different than your average American here in our sedentary industrialized lifestyle. So that was the first solid evidence for me personally that lifestyle does not affect energy expenditure the way we think. Uh, so now we have this foundation from which the entire fitness and diet industry has been built upon for the last hundred years or whenever we first started to, yeah. uh, want to, want to talk about dieting and, and, and so forth or getting in shape when we started to go into uh, industrial age with factory work and no humans were no longer fit and healthy and moving around all day. Uh, so, you know, now we're basically at a dead end and we need, we need Dr. Herman to, uh, to wind us out of there. And it's interesting. So when you went, you were expecting these guys to come through with their 7,000 calorie days, like the Ironman triathlete. And that's, that's what blew your mind when you got home. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I could show you the grant proposal we wrote at the National Science Foundation. And in fact, you know, if listeners who are in research will know that you never get the grant the first time you apply for it, right? So that we didn't get ours the first time either. We got pushed back and review and, and please think about this and that. And one of the reviewer comments was, we know what we're going to find anyway. What's the point? They're going to have these really high expenditures. You know that, we know that. What's the point of measuring this stuff? So it's really funny. I mean, I think um, nobody was more surprised than us about these results. Now I'll say this, you know, the first time you get shocking results like that, as a scientist, you go, Oh, I, I must have screwed up, or this is a, you know this is a weird phenomenon. So we've looked at other populations, we've looked at other species. This is true across the board. Uh, lifestyle just does not push daily energy expenditure around the way that that we're sold. So if that's the case, um, how are we going to explain some of the things like? Uh, you know, I was a pro triathlete for 10 years, Herman. I, yeah. I trained for many, many hours a day. I, I was a calorie burning machine. I was mm -hmm. a calorie consuming machine. Uh, but I guess there were some compensatory factors going on where I burned fewer calories when I was off the bike than the person who was sitting at the next cubicle working all day or something. Yeah, that's right. So what we're finding is that if you exercise more, you should, by the way, this is not an anti-exercise book. You have to do the exercise. Um, but what that does is your body re reacts and it compensates by turning energy expenditures and other tasks down. Now, you know, even when you're a really physically active person, elite triathlete, tri elite triathletes, I'm not sure, but even you know, your typical recreationally active person, they're burning most of their calories every day on things that are not physical activity. You know, your immune system, your digestive system, your stress reaction, your, you know, inflammation, things like that. 
you can turn all those things down and and free up a lot of energy basically for the act- activity. And then what that does is at the end of the day, the total number of calories you burned hasn't really moved because you've just juggled around how you spend the calories rather than increasing that top line number. Uh, and that could be a very bad deal. You know, Chris Kelly from Nourish Balance Thrive, sure. I think. And he gave this great quote that I've been thinking about since he since he uttered it. And he said, uh, reprodu- maybe he's quoting you. I'm not sure because we were talking about you during the whole conversation. But he said, reproduction, growth, repair, and locomotion are a zero-sum game. And if you do more of one, you take away from the others. So the triathlete who's, who's burning calories riding his bicycle uh, is getting suppressed immune function, um, muscle repair, all the things that we need to be to maintain our health. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, he might have been talking about the, the work that we, we, you know, that I've discussed and I've done. Um, it is kind of a zero-sum game. You know, you can put, I, I'll say this. While you're doing that triathlon, right, you can push your calorie expenditure up for that half day. And if you're in a real training, you know, a, a, a training month or a real, you know, you're ramping your training up for a couple of months in, in preparation for the season, that kind of thing. Yeah, for a while, you can go up above that ceiling. But no, your body really keeps things capped. And, you know, for most of us, that juggling, that, that metabolic compensation, you know, this zero-sum game thing here is good. Because for most of us, more exercise means less inflammation. More exercise means less stress-free activity. You know, cortisol levels and, and adrenaline levels. Uh, you know, keeps your reproductive hormones in in sort of in, in a place where they're supposed to be, rather than sky high. Um, but that's right. If you are, you know, an ultra marathon runner, a triathlete, if you are pushing your body to that level, okay, now you're cutting to the bone, and now that zero sum game can become to you know come back and get you because now you have not enough energy left for the essential stuff. Uh, so for the rest of us who are trying to uh, live a healthy, happy, balanced lifestyle, get out there and move to, to counterbalance the, the sedentary periods, um, what is the <laughs> sort of like, what's the, you know, what's the compulsion to get out and move if it doesn't, it's not going to do any good anyway in our, in our flawed, uh, you know, conventional notion here? Yeah, well, that's, I think that's right. I think we have to rethink why we exercise, right? I think if you tell folks that if you should you should exercise so that you can have, you know, a beach ready body or whatever it is, you know, or you, you can lose your weight through exercise, um, most folks aren't going to have that result because most folks their bodies adjust, and you know, it just we know that exercise is not a great tool for weight loss. Now, <laughs> well, if we tell people some of, that some of us know, but um, right. you know, take take down all the billboards uh, across yeah. uh, America with you know the massive marketing dollars behind it, and um, yeah, then that, that's why I guess you know the smoke's going to be clearing. That's why your book's called Burn. We're going to have a lot of smoke here, man. You're, <laughs> you're you're starting up. You're you're lighting stuff up here. I hope so. I mean, if we can sort of set the record straight just on that note, that would be so important. Um, exercise is really good for so many things, you know. Um, it just doesn't help for weight loss very much. So we have to rethink, you know, look, if you're looking at the bathroom scale and that number's not changing and you're like, what the hell's going on? Why am I even bothering to exercise? The answer is for all the stuff you can't see, all the things you can't see that are going on as you adjust to that exercise regime. Um, that's all the good stuff. That's going to keep you moving and fit and healthy and happy, you know, especially as you age, but even right now, um, that's what you're exercising for, not for the number on that bathroom scale. 
Well, the uh, regular daily movement as demonstrated by the Hadza and, and people that are trying to you know, be as healthy as possible, we know this, uh, this objective to move is even more important than adhering to a, a devoted exercise schedule where you get your butt on the spin bike at 6 a.m. And, and put in that hour and then sit around the rest of the day. And when we're moving around, um, is this going to have a positive impact on things like our appetite uh, our, our, you know, hunger and satiety levels and our ability to burn fat versus being uh, dependent on dietary carbs for energy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good point. They weave activity into their entire day, right? Literally from when they wake up with the sun uh, until they go to bed, you know, they're, they're moving the whole time. Yeah. And, tell yeah, us I, about your, uh, your voice recorder. And how you were out there, uh, the early field research. I want, I want to hear that anecdote. Yeah, that this, is, so funny. this is uh, learning to be an anthropologist with the Hadza. So, you know, my, my uh, graduate student training, I was more on the physiology side of anthropology. I was learning how the body worked, you know, the mechanics of it. Um, and I hadn't done a whole lot of field work with uh, other populations. And then I started doing this project with the Hadza with my buddy, Brian Wood. And, and he's spent his whole career with the Hadza. He's probably spent more nights in a Hadza camp than in his own bed the last two decades. Uh, and Brian's wonderful and a good friend. And, you know, so when we were out there and you're in these small camps, you know, grass huts in the middle of Savannah, and you spend your days either, maybe you spend your day at camp doing science stuff there, or else you spend your day out following the Hadza, going out with them because they don't spend their day in camp. They get out moving. Fine. Well, when you're doing that, you know, you keep notes and the best way to keep notes is a little voice recorder because otherwise you're kind of constantly scribbling down. So you keep this voice recorder notes and every five minutes, you're supposed to mark what you're doing. And I got all this, you know, this is what Brian told me. He said, look, every five minutes, you got to know what you're doing. Fine. And I just realized I would go out on these day long follows and every five minutes I'm saying 7.55 walking, eight o'clock walking. You just feel like an, an idiot because <laughs> you know? you're walking around whispering into this little device and the Hadza who are used to weird researchers they're like what the heck is this guy doing um and i got back to camp one night and i said look man um this i i, I gotta tell you brian it just seems weird that i'm just constantly saying walking into my revert my recording machine uh and brian goes oh you don't have to do that and i said what do you mean you don't have to do that of course you have to, oh no, i mean you have to keep notes on every five minutes but you know if you skip if you skip one, if you skip a check-in, we just assume you're walking because like that's, that's the, that's what you're always doing, right? That's the null hypothesis here. That's, that's the baseline for Hadza is walking. Uh, and so, you know, he's like, oh, you don't, nobody, it's like, who would actually say that every five minutes that you're walking? Of course you're walking. Um, <laughs> so it was really kind of funny. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, yeah, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world and it just isn't shows you just how much you're on your feet in a traditional society like that. And so because they're on their feet so much, uh, they're getting a number of health benefits, like you said, the yeah. stuff you're not seeing on the scale. And I think if we're not, uh, and we're sitting around, even though we're burning a lot of calories, I guess uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, what, what's the, uh, the negative effects of sitting around? But I, I also mm -hmm. want to ask, like, um, Oh, I forgot, but tell me, tell me about that one first. Well, so that's, a, you know, the science of inactivity has become this sort of its own science in the last couple of years. But when you're just sitting around, uh, your muscles, especially if you're like me right now, I'm in a comfortable chair. I shouldn't be, I should be doing something else. But anyway, 
here I am, you know, uh, in a comfortable chair and my muscles are very relaxed, which means they're not burning any calories, which means they have no need for fuel. And so these fatty acids, that these lipids that are floating around in my blood uh, that are there to be burned, you know, that's what they're there. That's what fat's for. Um, they're not getting used. And so they're kind of building up because they're getting produced, but they're not getting, bur- they're not getting burned up. That's what inactivity seems. To, that, that's why inactivity seems to be so bad for you. If I spend hours like this, and thankfully I won't, I'll get up and move after we're done talking. But if I spend hours and hours like this on the sofa watching TV or at work or whatever, those hours spent with high blood uh, lipid levels are just, it turns out, we know now that those are associated with really bad health outcomes, bad heart health outcomes, bad a range of things. Um, if I can just get moving a little bit, or if I was like a Hadza uh, man and I was squatting instead of sitting mm. in this comfy chair and I had a little bit of tonic muscle activity going on, um, that would that would maybe set me straight because it doesn't take much, but you got to get your muscles a little bit active um, to, to pull in to sort of hoover up all that uh, fat in your blood and use it. Uh, and I guess also you talked about this in the book. It was it was a really wonderful blend between uh, fun, interesting insights and, and storytelling about the Hadza. And then we had some heavy science. Like it could actually be a textbook for <laughs> a, a college class where learning about mitochondria and photosynthesis and the, the history of the planet and the energy. It's all about <laughs> energy expenditure. I want the listeners yeah. to realize that's your life's work and it, it extends in so many areas. Uh, and I want to talk about longevity relating to uh, calorie burning. Uh, yeah. But on this direct question, uh, I guess there's also the oxidative stress resulting yeah. from eating a bunch of food and then not getting up and doing your walking every five minutes like the Hadza. Right. Well, there's that too. And, you know, there's all sorts of bad things with inactivity. The oxidative stress piece is there for sure. You know, oxidative stress is interesting because you kind of, I mean, it's hard to avoid it completely, right? The fact that uh, we have these metabolic engines. There's always going to be a byproduct. There's always going to be a waste product. And oxidative stress is part of that. But normally, your body has a lot, all these, you know, antioxidant strategies. You actually have a gene, a set of genes, actually, that, that make an enzyme that break down oxidative stress things and help repair. Um, you can get antioxidants in your diet. So normally, that kind of give and take of of oxidative stress uh, production and and, and uh, repair that's in balance. But Inactivity is one of these ways that you can get out of balance. That's right. And, and it causes all kinds of trouble. Uh, I'm wondering if it could be simplified to your, you know, we, we talk so much about wanting to be a fat burning beast rather than dependent on dietary carbs as your primary source of energy. So if you're up and moving around at a, at a comfortable pace, right, the Hadza are not training for the next triathlon. Mm. So I imagine most of this is low level activity. So they're burning fat constantly. At a, at a nice rate because they're walking and they're not getting those those crash and burns that someone might have sitting at a desk, especially after that hour-long spinning class where they just torch themselves in the morning. Yeah, that could be the case. I mean, I'll say this. Uh, the Hadza aren't a high-fat uh, diet population. So that's interesting, right? So you can burn fats, right? You, you, could, you could eat carbs, turn them into fats, and then burn the fats. Uh, and they might well be doing that, but they don't have high fat levels, so they don't have a high fat reserve to pull from. But, um, you know, the that's been an interesting piece of this because we know that, you know, really sugar-rich diets can be a problem for a lot of people. Um, the Hods eat a lot of honey, you know, they eat a lot of tubers, which are starchy and stuff like that. So the finding, I, I think we need to, to work on next sort of how we square the circle on the nutrient intake that they have 
and the health outcomes that they have and, and how they're burning those calories and, and staying in nutrient balance. Okay, so what about the the slightly frustrated listener now who can cross off some of their resolutions that you know the secret to fat loss is to hit more more spin classes or, <laughs> or whatever? Um, what do we do? How do we get the excess body fat off the body? Yeah, I mean, I think this is comes back to the old adage: you cannot run a bad diet, right? You know, <laughs> uh, the or you cannot run your fork is another way I've heard that said, which is fun. Um, you know, if you want to work on your diet, you want to manage, sorry, sorry. If you want to manage your weight, you need to focus on your diet. Um, almost every other thing in your health, every other aspect of your health is, is going to be related to exercise. Uh, but weight specifically is really about diet because what our work with the Hodge shows and other people too, it's really hard to move that energy expenditure piece of the equation, right? At the end of the day, uh, the, every calorie that's in your body, uh, every gram of fat or protein or whatever, carbs, it's all calories that you ate and didn't burn off, right? So your weight is fundamentally about that balance between energy in and energy out. It's really hard to move the energy out piece. It's really hard to move that with lifestyle. So you got to focus on the energy that you take into your diet uh, if you want to really try to manage your weight. So how do you do that? Well, you know, I think a lot of people have found that a great way to manage energy intake is through a low carb diet. People have huge success with that. Um, there are people who have a lot of success through fiber heavy diets, right? And um, from my point of view, you know, and, and we might have a fun discussion about this, but from my point of view, uh, either way, you're basically finding a diet that feels good, that feels satiating, and that is limiting your calorie intake so that you don't overconsume. And there's a couple of different ways, to get, probably a whole variety of ways to get to that. Yeah, it could be any trick that you want to pull out of the deck. Right. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the carnivore diet due to the nutritional density and the fact that some people can uh, heal from uh, these autoimmune and inflammatory conditions caused by mm -hmm. plants. Uh, but guess what? If you restrict everything except for animal foods, you're going to have a good success rate with dropping fat because all of a sudden your diet's limited from you know, the, the, the glutton American presentation of the, at the buffet. Right. And there's a, this other aspect of it too, which is this, uh, sensory, uh, sensory specific satiety, right? This is the classic, um, Western situation in the industrialized world. No, nobody in the history of the planet has had this issue before, but, but this will be familiar to most of your listeners. You go to a restaurant, you order the steak. It's fantastic. You couldn't eat another bite. And then unless you're, you know, if you've already, unless you've already sworn off the carbs, then they bring around the dessert plate and you think, oh, actually I could eat another bite. In fact, actually I could have a slice of cheesecake right now, you know, and you go home and you think, oh gosh, I'm gaining weight. And it's because of that darn, well, you pick, is it because of the darn cheesecake? Is it because of the darn steak? Whatever it's, it's actually because you overate calories. Now, why did you overate the calories? It's because your brain was doing a pretty good job making you feel full about that heavy protein, heavy fat meal you just ate. But all of those sweet carb reward systems were wide open. They weren't protected, right? Because your brain and, you, and your brain goes, "Oh, that that would actually be pretty nice too." In, <laughs> in, in you know, in Hodgeland, that doesn't happen. In Hodgeland, the meal come home, you know, the, the tubers come in and you eat tubers till you're stuffed, mm. or the kudu comes home and you eat kudu until you're stuffed, or warthog, or whatever it is, or honey. And it isn't just like, oh, would you like dessert? Or, you know, it's, <laughs> there's none of that, right? So um, I think that by 
cutting carbs out of your diet, right? One of the reasons that's going to work is you already know you're not going to have the cheesecake. You've already sworn it off and good. And that's great, right? That's one great way to do that, right? Um, you, you would have the same result if you had, had the, the vegetarian option. And then in terms of calorie intake, anyhow, you'd have, if you'd had the calorie, the, the, the vegetarian option and sworn off the cheesecake, that would, <laughs> that would be good too, you know? So it's this concept of hyper palatable foods that's becoming popular now, where especially yeah. the pairing of carbs and fat together, which you're saying that never happens with the Hadza. They don't have honey glazed warthog or anything of the sort. <laughs> Nothing at all. No, I mean, their, their diet is actually pretty bland. You know, um, I wish I could tell exotic stories of, of all the crazy meals you have in Hadza land, but you don't. It's like, you know, roasted uh, antelope, uh, roasted tubers. Um, Honey, honey's tasty. You know, the, the berries they eat are really fibrous, not very sweet. And, it, you know, it, it's filling. It's good food, but it's not, I wouldn't ever describe it as delicious. It'd be hard to market uh, a Hadza a a diet. Menu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, we know that there's all these uh, unfortunate compensatory mechanisms when we underconsume calories. Yeah. And that doesn't work for fat loss either in, in, in real life. Uh, is that ever uh, an occasion for the Hadza where they have some periods of scarcity even even today? And so we, yeah, what happens? Well, so you know they don't have um, they don't have refrigerators and they don't even have you know they don't smoke foods or anything like that or any way to, to preserve them. So every day they wake up and they got to go get food from the landscape. So potentially there's a shortfall. You know, potentially they'll have a shortfall day. Um, what I can tell you is that for the you know. The weeks and months that I've spent in Hadza camps, I've never seen them hungry for a day. You know, uh, they they know they, that landscape to them is like Trader Joe's. You know, they they like oh, there's the tubers are over there, and I can go get a zebra if I head out that. Yeah, you know, and they they know it very well. They're comfortable there. They don't feel. I don't think they ever wake up scared that they're not going to get food that day, um, and they would never intentionally starve themselves. Now, in the history of being a hunter gatherer, are there ever periods over the course of your life when you know, things are bad for a couple of days or whatever. And, and, and I just haven't observed that myself. Sure, that probably must happen. Um, but, but regular sort of fasting, the way that's become popular, um, isn't something that we see in the Hadza. That doesn't mean it, it might not be good for you, whatever, but it's not something that we see in a hunting and gathering group that I'm aware of. Uh, and can you describe the adverse effects of someone who uh, takes it upon themselves to join the biggest loser TV uh, show and, and starve themselves for six weeks in the interest of dropping body fat. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you go on a crash diet and you really cut down the calories that way, um, again, you know, think about yourself from an evolutionary perspective. The name of the game is turning energy into kids and surviving until the next chance you have to do that, right? So you got to survive and reproduce. If you starve yourself, if you really limit your calories severely, your body responds by going, oh my God, you know, the, the, the times are bad and it puts the brakes on everything, right? So that all those sort of metabolic uh, adjustments it can do to exercise, it can do across the board to everything, uh, you know, to, to reduce energy expenditures in, in the face of, of severe calorie restriction. And so, you know, the Biggest Loser contestants, you're familiar with that show, um, some really great work that came out of there, actually. I mean, I, I think it's just a absolutely vicious show. You watch these people, I mean, they're just suffering, you know, it seems horrible to me, but um, anyway, the other, the really tragic thing about The Biggest Loser is that it doesn't last, right? I mean, 
it's it's sad enough to watch these people just you know who are desperate enough to try to go through this. The real tragedy is you come back six years later and they've done this, and just about everybody's gained all the weight back, and it's because they haven't found a lifestyle that keeps them at a weight that 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 works for them. Um, they haven't found that diet that helps them feel full on less, and you know the starvation and, and extreme thing they did actually the body responds to that really negatively, right? So, um, yeah, don't go extreme. I think is the lesson we learned from that. Uh, so now, as we zero in on that goal to drop uh, the extra five, ten, or twelve, or seventeen pounds we have, right? What's the what's the recommended strategy? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think for me is you got to stick to the principles. And look, I'm not a dietitian. Um, I'm not a clinician. You know, I study energy expenditure. I study how the body works. That's what I'm interested in doing. Um, that's where, uh, yeah, that, that's that's my science. And what the science says to me is there is no easy fix. That it's actually very hard to move your weight around a lot. People have that's why people struggle is it's hard. The body responds in ways that, that frustrate that weight loss. Um, but what seems to be successful is finding that diet that works for you. In other words, that makes you feel full on fewer calories. And for a lot of you, that might be a carnivore diet. For other people, that might be a high fiber plant-based diet. Some people might get by with a mixed Mediterranean diet. You know, I, I'm not, I have no, uh, I have no dog in the fight, as they say. I, I've got no allegiance to any particular diet. Um, and I think anybody who's serious about the, the metabolism science of it would say the same thing that, you know, there's a lot of ways you can potentially get there. None of them are, you know, wave your magic wand and, and it's going to be easy for everybody. Uh, but I love the alliteration there of feel full on fewer calories. That's, that's a beautiful secret. We could, we, we could get it. We could get some skin in the game. It could be the, the, the Ponser diet, just, you know, <laughs> head out there. Right. It's pretty simple. Um, yeah. So do you, um, uh, do you uh, challenge the possible oversimplification of uh, that we just need to reduce carbs and lower insulin in order to drop fat? Oh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, in my view, the reason that, that low-carb uh, meat-heavy diets work is not because of anything to do in particular with insulin. Um, in fact, there's some really recent work coming out uh, in the last couple of weeks, you know, that shows that you know drugs that actually ramp up your insulin levels, but that affect satiety, um, are great for weight loss. Semaglutide, which is this interesting drug that uh, gets into the, the satiety signaling uh, pathways in your brain, it has this. Uh, it, it boosts your insulin levels up much higher than they are before you're on the drug, and people are showing weight loss of like you know. Uh, 15, 20, 30% of body weight. So, um, and, and as far as I'm aware, you know, the, the, the careful tests of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity uh, worked by people like Kevin Hall, for example, uh, just doesn't bear out that mechanism. So, you know, from my point of view, insulin, of course, is a really important hormone. It's going to be involved in everything to do with weight maintenance and everything else. But um, that particular hypothesis that carbs are bad because of what they do to insulin and because of what insulin does to fat. I don't, in my view, the science doesn't bear that out. Uh, so I guess we can back up and look at the nutrient deficiency of the many processed carbohydrates that we eat, yeah. knowing that they're not giving us any benefit 
and they're contributing to uh, the excess caloric intake that, that that's, right. that's standard. So that's, yeah, that's I mean, a big deal. Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you cut out sugars, especially added sugars, um, you're going to be cutting out a whole raft of ultra-processed foods that are terrible for you. So, hey, if you want to go cut out added sugars out of your life, that's a great start, actually. I have a fantastic idea. Do you know that over half the calories that typical American eats are from ultra-processed foods? The um, 30% of the calories you eat as a typical American are purely added sugar and added oil, right? It, that's disgusting. And so, um, so yeah, if you go to a, a diet of foods that, you know, you buy fresh from the store, and I realize that's a privileged thing to say, it can be hard to afford that. Not everybody has access to good foods. But that issue aside for a moment, if you can go out and buy those foods that, that are whole foods and are not ultra processed and added sugars and added oils, everything else, you will be healthier. That's my, that's my wager. And I stick to that one. Um, and I don't think it's had anything, any magic to do with insulin or no, I don't think so. Actually, I think it's just that if you cut out sugars, for example, like I said, you're going to be healthier just by cutting out all those ultra processed foods. And arguably more satisfied because you're yeah. not, um, you know, challenging these delicate hormonal processes and uh, experiencing a hunger spike uh, three hours later. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there, there's this really great study done in the 90s by a woman named Susan Holt out of Australia. And she had people eat 100 calories of different kinds of foods. And she would check on them, you know, before they started eating it and then after for a couple hours. And she would just ask them, how hungry do you feel now? And so she was able to get ratings and they're pretty, pretty reliable. People rated the same foods the same ways. Um, you know, how full do you feel after a hundred calories of bread? So bread was this, was the, the baseline, right? So bread already can you know, feel hungry. The gold standard of diet. A yeah, piece of but bread. It, she, it wasn't, she wasn't promoting bread. She just wanted to have something that was standard, that was common, that she could use, you know, over the whole experiment. So, um, but baked goods or even worse than bread. They make you, you, you get hungry right away. Uh, so you might think, oh, well, yeah, baked goods, well, added sugars. Sure, absolutely. No, no good for you. Um, but the big things that, that determined if people felt full or not, the best predictor of if it, it made you feel full or not were either the protein levels or the fiber levels. Mm. And so, you know, and I, the work I've seen since then, that's a, 90s, a 1990s study, seems to support that idea. So I think those are what you want to focus on, protein, and fiber. And guess what? You're not going to find protein and fiber in ultra-processed foods either because protein mm. and fiber are expensive and hard to sell. And so, uh, you know, it, it comes back to the same story. Uh, what about the movement aspect in terms of feeling satisfied or not compelled to overeat? Does yeah. that have some relationship? I, I do wonder. I think um, if we can get away from the idea that exercise is useful because of the calories burned and how it adds to my exercise, my, you know, and, and we can get say, away from that people get away. Yeah. If we can move away from that and have a, a much more um, nuanced or complex way of, of thinking about how the body works and say, exercise is really good for us. It doesn't seem to be doing this calorie thing that I thought it does, but it's doing other things. Well, what are those other things? Well, first of all, like I said, it's, it's rejuggling how you spend your energy on other tasks. But I think you're right that it could also have a satiety component to it. Um, I mean, exercise gets everywhere. You know, exercise isn't just in your muscles. Exercise gets in, you know, all sorts of signaling molecules get sent out when you exercise. It affects all your systems across your body. 
So I think absolutely there could be a signaling piece there. I should say that exercise seems to be really good to help you keep weight off if you manage to lose it. So that's an important piece of the puzzle. Why is that? Well, again, it could be a sort of regulation issue, right? More than just the calories. Um, but yeah, if I, I'm I'm down with that, man. If we can just move away from this kind of, you know, what we're sold, which is the kind of cartoon version of how the body works, that if you exercise more, you can earn that donut, right? If we can, if we can get away <laughs> from that and get towards, okay, exercise is important. Now let's talk about why. Um, I think we're going to all be better off and the science is going to get more interesting. Well, it occurs to me too that we have these weird uh, modern inputs such as boredom, uh, cognitive fatigue from focusing on a screen, things that our hunter-gatherer ancestors and, and friends in Hodzaland have no concept of. Uh, but I think we turn to food for yeah. stress relief, uh, a break from sedentary period to get up and, and walk. Now, now, unfortunately, everyone's working at home. So they're walking eight yards yeah. to the refrigerator instead of having to go around to the corner, the corner shop and, and burn some calories. But right. if that could be replaced with more movement, I mean, the Hadza must be too busy to sit down and eat uh, six small meals a day like the bodybuilder. Yeah, yeah, that would be tough for them to do. Um, but it, that's, you know, we spend 87% of our lives indoors. And another 5% in a car. Uh, and that's, Are you making that up or is that, is that stats? That's real. That's oh, real my science. my goodness. That's unbelievable. Um, it's, it's horrible. And, you know, and, and we live these lives where we, you know, you move away for work and you get separated from your social network. Um, you know, how many people see their grandparents every day, you know, or have connections to their aunts and uncles and, and cousins? Um, and that's just how life is. And that's, we're going to have to, we're going to have to deal with that. Uh, but we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't think that those have effects on the way that, that our bodies work because we're social animals. We're built to be outside. Um, circadian rhythms are a real thing. And when we, we blow those up with crazy sleep schedules and, and TV binges, uh, there's trouble. So, you know, it isn't, I, I talk with folks about you and sorry, I talk with folks like you about diet and exercise. And, you know, I think you're right that we need to expand this discussion. It's more than just the diet and exercise. It's the social connections. It's getting outside. It's staying on a circadian rhythm that, that makes sense for your body. Um, all those things matter. And, you know, it, it's not just one thing. Well said. I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of, uh, we're looking for gimmicks and shortcuts and it, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Yeah. I think, um, I, I hope people will check out the book, <laughs> but you know, maybe, uh, well, I can see why people are drawn to books that promise an easy answer. <laughs> and I can see why people write books that say there's an easy answer. Um, but it's wishful thinking, man. I, I don't think it works that way. I think, I think we actually understand what the problem is <laughs> more than we want to admit. And we're just going to have to buckle down and, and try to, to, to deal with it. Well, Herman, you just revealed yourself as a, as a true scientist. I remember talking to Dom D'Agostino, one of the leading researchers in the ketogenic diet. It was in preparation for writing this book several years ago when keto was just coming out and Mark yeah. Sisson and I had to get up to speed and, and I'm interviewing him. And he said, I don't know 
so many times during the interview that finally I became exasperated. I'm like, dude, that, that's like your favorite answer. What's going on? You know? And he says, uh, beware of people that, uh, you know, drew these sweeping proclamations and conclusions because that's not real science, but that's what we're drawn to. And that's what we see on, um, uh, you know, the good morning show where the, the expert comes in and says, this is how it is it, with, you know, great certainty, <laughs> but real science yeah. is, is constantly requiring that open mind and that critical thinking and observation and not, not judging. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, that's why it's so much fun because when I wake up in the morning, um, I get to do creative, fun work, and I get to go wherever the, the data leads me. But that means I also have to have an open mind about it and uh, and not already know the answer. Because if I already knew the answer, I wouldn't be doing science. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so back to you know the, the the blow away initial statement that we burn a similar number of calories every day despite our exercise output. You also had a concept, a new term that I learned in the book called um, metabolic diversity such that there's some variation between individuals of the same weight and, and mm-hmm. so forth. Can you describe that a little? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and this is another one of those sort of eye-opening things. Uh, well, let's start with, first of all, how most people think about you know how many calories they burn every day. If you look at your Fitbit or you look at your online uh, calorie counter, right? you type in your body weight and, how I, and it gives you a number. Well, maybe it says 2,500 calories a day. Well, of course, I think we know that that's an estimate. Um, the question is, how far off is that likely to be? And the answer is, it can be pretty far off. <laughs> you know, the two people, same same size, same body composition, same lifestyle, could easily be different in their calorie burn every day by 500 calories a day. Easy. I mean, in fact, more than that wouldn't surprise me. If somebody is 250 above and somebody's 250 below, what you kind of would expect, that would be normal. I wouldn't be, that wouldn't, you wouldn't bat an eye if you study energetics like I do. Um, and that's really interesting. Okay. 500 calories a day. My God. I mean, and that's even after you account for activity level and after you account for body size, all the stuff that you think you might want to account for. So what the heck is going on that somebody is burning 500 calories a day more than another person. That's the equivalent of running five miles by the day, by the way. So, (laughs) you know, so somebody's body is running five miles more than somebody else's body doing what, um, you know what we honestly don't know. We don't know how to explain that that residual ex- expenditure yet. Uh, we know it's real because I know that if I measure you today and I measure you in five years, if you're a high expenditure person today, you are going to be a high expenditure person in five years. And if you're low today, you're going to be low in five years. So we know it's real. It's not just measurement error. Um, it has to do with something about how the body's burning calories and, and what tasks the body's doing. Um, but exactly how that works out is, is yet to be discovered. So I guess you are you saying now it's possibly just genetic variation or genetic good fortune because it it must be correlated with lower body fat level if you happen to be a high calorie burner I don't know maybe so here's not. what's crazy is it actually isn't so if you're a high calorie burner right that's different than the somebody who says oh I have a high, I have a fast metabolism I can eat anything I want that's different we actually that would be a, an interesting study to do to see if people's perceptions of how fast they burn calories have any relationship to how many, how fast they really are. Um, it doesn't look like it has any relationship at all. You know, whether you feel like you can eat anything you want has to do with how your brain's wired, whether or not you have a, so, so back to this question about high and low energy expenditure, people, people with high metabolisms, you're the, you're the person who burns, you know, more calories than the, somebody your size and shape should. You are not protected against gaining weight into the future. We know this. We've done this work. 
somebody who has a low energy expenditure, you're below average for your size, body composition, age, you are not doomed to gaining weight. And that's because your brain, it all comes back to your brain. Your, your brain does a phenomenal job matching how many calories you bring in and how many calories you burn off. And, um, you know, to within 99.99% accuracy. And it'll do that at a low level. It'll do it at a high level. Your brain doesn't care. Your brain doesn't know that you're a high or a low level person. It just knows that this is how many calories I burned, this is how many calories I need to eat. Well, well, how do we screw that up then with lifelong yeah. accumulation of excess body fat if the brain's so if the brain's so smart, Herman? How, uh, yeah. how come this, he tells me to eat more so ice cream? Oh, mercy. Yeah, well, so th this is why, you know, this is more evidence, I think, that that it's these ultra-processed foods that are really troublesome because Ooh. we know from work on you know brain scans while people eat different foods or think about even just think about different foods that it lights up your reward systems in ways that that push you to overconsume and it doesn't have to be much right so um think about this if you gain two pounds a year and that that is the american obesity crisis is two pounds a year you're a normal weight 20 year old you're 28 pounds overweight or 40 pounds overweight by the time you're 40 um two pounds a year is still only a, a mismatch of two 365ths uh, of the energy that you brought in and took out every day. So in other words, it's, a, it's, it's less than a quarter of a percent uh, that you are mismatching energy intake and expenditure. So that's like a, a macadamia nut per day or, or something to that effect or an M&M. Yeah, as, as you like to. I don't know if you're sponsored by M and M's. We hear a lot about M and M's in the book, like climbing that. What is it? Climbing, <laughs> climbing a flight of stairs. It burns one M and M. Is that is that our scientific That's calculation? About right. Yeah. Yeah. Was, um, yeah. You know, I was trying to make calories real, in, and I thought, well, what, what's the smallest unit that people would be familiar with? And so I went with an M and M, about four calories, as I recall. But uh, the, yeah, but that's right. So it only you know it's like an M and M a day, um, and so when you see that kind of, of that's a, that's a regulation issue, right? The fact that you're seeing that kind of creep, right? That's a regulation issue. That's not like an, I ate cheesecake today issue. And that's a thousand calories, right? Cause you're not off by a thousand calories. You're off by four. So th this is a, <laughs> this is a regulation issue, right? More than anything. Um, and I think again, I pin it, I pin the, the blame on these uh, hyper palatable ultra processed foods that our brains, you know, your paleolithic brain just is not built to handle. Do we need to uh, tackle this problem necessarily in a linear manner, or can we have a really good uh, two-week uh, training camp or, or hiking vacation where uh, we get some work done, we drop some body fat, we return to regulation or perhaps uh, tipping over the scale with an extra M&M per day, <laughs> and then kind of stair-step down to our ideal weight? Or do you have any comments on on, hmm. on the um, on the pace? Yeah, I would say you have to go kind of low and slow in general, because if you go too fast, you're going to see the biggest loser phenomenon. You're going to see your body put the brakes on. Uh, so, you know, how slow is that? That's a tricky question, but you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't go any extreme. I wouldn't go to any extremes. I would try to find that diet that, that makes you feel full on fewer calories. Right. Um, but that hiking idea is a nice one. I like that. And I know personally, when I go on, a backpacking trip, or if I do field work, which is kind of like a backpacking trip, um, you know, I, I tend to lose a little bit of weight. I tend to 
get more exercise because it's more exercise than a desk job. And, um, and I feel great. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm behind this. Let's do this, Brad. Let, let's have this, uh, let's have a hiking approach. I, I like it a lot. Well, did the athletes go to training camp and they come back and they're, you know, six, six pounds lighter and they're ready for peak performance, right. uh, probably unsustainable. But now from, from uh, listening to you, it's, you know, if we do achieve our objectives, which a lot of people are showing that they can do it, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a matter of staying there rather than yeah. regaining the weight back. And I guess we could point most of the blame, knowing now that our calorie burning is consistent through the winter, the summer, yeah. whether the gym was closed or not, we can point the blame on the hyper palatable foods and making those choices to overeat. Uh, I love the example of, you know, having that wonderful dinner in the restaurant. And then the dessert cart comes over and, and they even usually say, can I tempt you with some dessert, which is, you know, good, clear, uh, that's a clear choice of words there. Cause that's what we're, we're doing is we're messing with that brain. That's so smart. That knows exactly how satisfied we are. And we've eaten just the right amount. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, bet you can't eat just one. Uh, it's, it's a, not just a marketing gimmick. It's <laughs> they, they know exactly what they're doing. Whew. Okay. Uh, before I let you go, I want to I want to hear a little more about the um, the scene down there. And one thing occurs to me: these HUDs are getting quite famous now. There's a lot of research on yeah. them. Are they at risk of getting um, you know infiltrated with candy bars or uh, whatever else oh. that, um, people want to bring them? I, I mean, I saw pictures from Paul Saldino's trip, and and I think you know some of them had uh, you know a tire on that came from uh, the outlet store or whatnot. So. How do they mix in and what yeah. else do we have left in the world that are truly pure hunter-gatherer populations for study and, and appreciation? This is a really important question. And I, I want to I take a little bit of time on this because I think this is exactly something we need to all be thinking about. Uh, first of all, the Hadza are not, you know, sort of you know, trapped in amber time machines, right? They, they are modern folks like you and me. All humans were all the same all the same humans. We're all the same species. We're all modern humans. They grew up in a culture that is a hunting and gathering culture. And so that's why they're interesting to somebody like me. But we're all just people. Um, they are, you know, the closest thing that we get in the States to somebody, a group like the Hadza are like the, the old order Amish. I grew up in Pennsylvania. And you see Amish folks out, you know, in some parts of Pennsylvania that uh, they don't have a lot of the modern conveniences that, that we live with. Typically, they just won't do it. You know, it's, it's a kind of a 1700s farmstead kind of lifestyle. And they choose that and they stick to it. And, um, you know, and it's, it's legit. It's how they grew up. It's their tradition. It's, it's real. Uh, but it's also a choice in a way, right? They could, you know, cash in and, and go and, and, and work a factory job or something like that and get the internet and everything. But they don't because they don't want to. Uh, the Hods are the same way. They know about the outside world. They see people driving through. They see uh, tourists occasionally. They see researchers occasionally and um, other folks coming through. I mean, that, that part of, of Africa is crowded with different tribes and different groups. And so, that, you know, it isn't like they don't know about the outside world and haven't seen a candy bar or haven't seen a computer or whatever. They, they just don't want to do it. And so they stay remote and they stay in their bush camps if they want to. Um, it's interesting. Some of the camps are closer to villages. We don't work in those camps, but they have some of the camps are closer to villages because those guys, you know, they want to be able to walk into town occasionally and I don't know, wow. hang, see town, you know, I don't know. Um, but even the ones in the bush camps, they will find a way to walk into town sometimes and trade for a cotton shirt 
because cotton's more comfortable than animal skins, right? So could they make their shirt out of animal skins? Absolutely. But they also, because they know about the outside world and they're not, they're not, they're not dumb, <laughs> they will come on out and, and, you know, they're savvy. They'll trade and, and get what's nice and, and take the good parts back with them, basically. So, you know, I don't worry about the Hadza being tempted or being infiltrated. If they wanted to do that, <laughs> they would already would, you know, and, but they like their lifestyles. They're proud of themselves. They're proud of their culture and they should be. And so they stick with it. I worry about when they don't have a choice anymore. Mm. I worry when groups around them that have a little more political power or a little more money or, or whatever, um, you know, push them out of their traditional lands. That's, that's attention right now, now in that part of, it has been for decades now in that part of Africa. Uh, and so I worry about that, but I don't worry about them sort of waking up one day and going, Oh gosh, I wish, you know, now that I know about the internet, I'm going to go leave for town. I'm not worried about that because they already know about the internet. They just don't care. <laughs> and yeah. there's, are there any occasions of uh, outlying individuals that strolled into town and, uh, you know, Instead. made the jump like uh, Floyd Landis, the great Tour de France cyclist, grew up in, in Mennonite, Pennsylvania. That's right. He, he wanted to race his bike and his family forbid him because they, they needed to work on the farm. And he said, forget this, man, I'm going I'm going to the top. And he he, you know, springboarded yeah. into modern modern living and high profile sports. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you do have hods of folks that leave and don't come back. Um, more often, we see uh, the men who are late teens, early 20s, and they go and get a job with a safari company or something like that for a while. Or sometimes they work with the military there. You know, they'll go, go enlist with the army for a tour or whatever. Um, and, you know, I, I imagine I used to be a, a teenage <laughs> you know, teenage yeah. guy. and Wild-eyed uh, teenager with yeah, the world at you know, your feet. I, yeah, I, I can imagine that you look around and go, huh, I wonder what is over, you know, what life would be like. But what's interesting is they always come back in my experience. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm sure you can find examples of folks who decide to not come back, but uh, by and large, I, they, they come back. Uh, and I think it's because when you grow up in that lifestyle and that close knit, you know, it's a close knit community. Um, it's a, it's a low stress life in a lot of ways. You know, there are not a lot of people telling you what to do. Nobody tells any odds of people what to do. There's no hierarchy or anything like that. Um, I think, it's, I think that's pretty attractive when you dip your toe into the uh, industrialized world and you go, wait a second, I've got a boss and an alarm clock and the heck with this, man. You know, so I think they go back for that reason. Tell me what za means to the hot <laughs> za means to give. Yeah, I mean, that's the fundamental piece of it, right? Uh, hunting and gathering. And it's the and part that matters, right? What other species has half the group does this and half the group does that. And at the end of the day, they all share. I mean, I, I, no other group, no other species does that. It's the, it's the first in the history of the world. Um, and that's the human, that's the human strategy. And that's why we're having this conversation over a satellite driven internet radio because uh, we put our heads together and we do phenomenal things. And it's that togetherness that works, right? That's, that's both the kind of blessing and the curse of being human. When we put our minds together and put our, our efforts together, we can literally do anything. Um, when, you know, when we get suspicious of each other and push groups apart, we get all kinds of horrible stuff happening. But at the core of that togetherness, at the core of this sort of socialness that, that binds humans together, the, you know, the, the beginning of that was hunting and gathering. And uh, hunting and gathering is inherently this communal way of life. 
and sharing is at the very base of that. And so the Hadza word za, which means to give, is just the sort of thing you hear again and again in a Hadza camp. And it's because they give to each other without question all the time. And it's just how you live your life. Right. And I, I love reading how they, they don't even need to say thank you or the pleasantries right. that because it's so expected, it's all it's all part of the it's all part of the culture. It's not like a an unusual thing to give where the person's waiting for the thank you note or what have you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you only say please and thank you if there's any kind of expectation that you might say no. Right? <laughs> that's you, the only reason. You, yeah. If you can't say no, you know, because you're bound by this tight social contract then please and thank you are kind of, you know, at, at best kind of unnecessary and at worst kind of like, well, what do you mean? Thank you. But of course I was going to give it to you. Of course I had like, what are you implying that maybe I wouldn't honor the contract? You know, everybody gives, that's what we do. Wow. That must be so wild to go and, and, and study them and then return to real life. And I wonder if you have some, you know, profound takeaways that have affected you personally uh, in, in, in your daily life from, from being able to, uh, you know, go back in time, essentially. Yeah. I think the big thing for me is, uh, you know, when you first go to and, and, and hang out with a group like the Hadza that are so different, and this would happen traveling anywhere, you know, you travel to Europe or Japan or Australia or any, pick your place. You get out of your own culture, you see a different culture. You're first knocked over by the differences. Oh, they eat this way. Oh, they say things that way. And, you know, when you go to a culture like the Hadza, it's so different in a lot of ways that you're like, it really takes a while to sort of just stop going, wow, because <laughs> you're just amazed by the whole thing the whole time. But then if you get to spend a lot of time there, as I've had a chance to do, you begin to see the similarities. And that's what really comes out for you. And then when you see the similarities and you begin to see the sort of common humanity there, and for me, it was the kids at first. I would see kids running around. I've got little kids myself, uh, a nine and a six-year-old going to be seven. And um, when I go there and I see hundreds of kids running around and, you know, it just puts me in mind of my own kids running around in the backyard. And I think, yeah, man, it's just, it's, we're just all the same, you know, kids are kids. And then you realize that the, the you know, men and women are having the same discussions that we have at home about what, what do you want to do now or tomorrow or should we do this? You know, it's always, it's, it's the same thing. And that common humanity just bubbles up to me and uh, it does two things. One of first thing I go, oh, well, that's just that reminder that I needed, everybody needs that we're all the same. We're all the same species. We're all the same group here. Everybody's a human. But the other thing is that when you can see that com common humanity in there and you can really identify with it. I think it makes it easier to take some of these principles home and you begin to wonder, why do I do things this way? Why do I do things that way? Why do I have to follow a clock? Why do I you know, think that I have to raise my kids that way or work with a colleague this way? You know, there's all these, there's, there's actually a lot of, of breadth there to how I work my life um, that is open to me if I wanted to be open to it. Wow, what a beautiful, heavy Ending. I love it, Dr. Herman Ponser. <laughs> that is that is something for all of us to reflect upon, even if we're not going to head out there tomorrow, just to just to imagine and then and then taking that back, right? Just just keeping that open mind. What a what a great interview. I really urge people to go get the new book, Burn. Uh, tell us how else we can connect with you and learn more about your work. Yeah. So, you know, I'm online and check us out on the online at Duke here and check out what we're doing at the Ponser Lab for research. 
Um, I'd also encourage people, if you want to learn more about the Hadza, maybe if you want to help give back to this community that's learned, that we've learned so much from about diet and exercise and everything else, uh, you can go to hadzafund.org, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D.org. Um, I run that with Brian Wood and Dave Reichlin and a couple of other uh, folks who, who want to give back to the Hadza. And so you can learn about their culture there, some about our work, and also uh, ways you can help out. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Herman Ponser. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's a wrap. Da, 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 da. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five-star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.